welcome to Think Business Futures. On the show, we take cutting-edge business research and couple it with real-world examples to explore what's actually happening in the business, finance and marketing worlds. I'm Nicole Sutton, lecturer in accounting at the UTS Business School, and on this episode, we're looking at the changing nature of corporate social responsibility. And to unpick this, we're lucky enough to have Professor Peter Fleming, Professor in Management from the UTS Business School. So, Peter, let's start at the beginning. I'm interested to understand what exactly is corporate social responsibility. Now, just a word of warning to our listeners, mm-hmm. the acronym for that is... CSR. CSR. And so, I mean, that could be, you know, a packet of sugar. Yep. Uh, and when we're talking about CSR today, we're not talking about the sugar. No. We're, we're talking about corporate social responsibility. So... Sure. What is it and where did it come from? So corporate social responsibility as a practice has been around for a long time, a concern at least. You know, with the birth of the modern corporation and modern business, there was always a concern about how that profit-maximising behaviour would influence society more generally. Mm -hmm. And so you got the rise of paternalism, you know, workers' rights, et cetera, et cetera, organisations being a little bit more worried about what was occurring in the broader sphere of its influence. But it really took on the acronym of CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, really emerged as a fully-fledged idea in the 1960s and 1970s. Mm -hmm. This is when corporations basically were suffering a sort of a legitimacy crisis. One of the principal things about the 60s that I remember is how much people hated the big corporation without a soul. We hated them because they were so dehumanizing. So they had been pursuing their uh, profit uh, maximization strategies very happily, you know, in the chemical industry, petroleum oil, um, steel industry, and a whole raft of other industries that then were beginning to be questioned regarding their impact on everyone else. So be it the consumer, be it the natural environment, uh, be it society more generally in terms of um, workers' rights and so forth. And so they had to come up with a response, a narrative. And one of the responses was corporate social responsibility, in which um, firms began to say what they were doing above and beyond that profit-maximising activity. Now, it's important to also note that the idea was contested For example, uh, Milton Friedman, on the hard right of neoclassical economics, said the idea was terrible. How do you define socially responsible? What business is it of the corporation to decide what's socially responsible? That isn't their expertise. That isn't what uh, their stockholders asked them to do. So I think they're going out of their range. And it certainly is not democratic. But that view actually kind of fell to the wayside and corporate social responsibility took off as a narrative at least, mainly in the form of philanthropy. So with these huge profits, giving back to the community in various uh, shapes and forms, and you see that even today with, you know, uh, philanthropy in full swing in the United States. So that's really kind of, with that contradiction, really kind of promoted and gave birth to the idea of corporate responsibility. So what is the firm, what is your business doing above and beyond just making money, given the uh, possibly detrimental effects that that operation might have on everyone else? And so apart from... 
uh, giving money away. Mm. What are some of the other ways that companies do CSR? What sort of things do they do when they're showing that they are, you know, acting responsibly and they're going above and beyond just the profit motive? Well, the, it takes many, many forms. Um, so, for example, oil firms operating in Nigeria, Africa might be kind of setting up wells for clean water or maybe investing in schools. You have a branch of organisations interested in the environmental impact and uh, the detrimental effects that their products may have on the environment and trying to taper, if you like, uh, those effects or develop new products. You might have interest in workers' rights so that the firm basically wants to be seen as a best employer mm -hmm. and that's part of its corporate social responsibility program in the sense that it's not exploiting workers to the hilt as it otherwise could. Supply chains, there is kind of regulatory uh, oversight on supply chains to make sure that you know no one's been horribly harmed in the supply chain to bring your computer, your laptop or your iPhone to the market. So there's various ways in which the organisation can at least promote or, or publicise what it is doing above and beyond simply the bottom line. Now on this bottom line, this reminds me of a phrase that we hear in relation to corporate social responsibility, which is triple bottom line. Sure. Now I'm an accountant, I have, a, I have an idea what a bottom line is, but what's a triple bottom line? So it all comes from sustainability. Yep. So if the idea is that an organisation to be responsible has to be sustainable, a triple bottom line is uh, where you've got uh, profits mm -hmm. and then you've got the environment and the stakeholders around the organisation have to also be treated in a sustainable manner. In other mm -hmm. words, that it's just not a short-term burst of exploitation. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is to extend the bottom line approach to say the only thing that matters is profits is to say, well, you know, there are these other two bottom lines. And then the big sub-debate in, in the academic discourse, at least, was to say, OK, so is that good for business or not? Mm. And so there's a big argument to say that corporate social responsibility isn't just an expense, uh, it just doesn't dig into the profit motive, but it can actually be good for the profit motive because of reputation, because of uh, the goodwill of consumers and so forth. So you, you said before that companies can in, engage in CSR as a way to indicate their kind of virtue. And so who would be their intended audiences of their CSR policies and credentials? Well, uh, there can be a number of audiences depending, I guess, on the industry and the organisation involved, but you would obviously have a strong signal given to the government, given that they're the boss of society and they make the rules mm -hmm. um, and you want to keep them on board. So the government would be, regulators would be a major um, target audience. So in that situation, you, you want to be showing that you're doing enough so that the government's not forced into a position to renege on your social licence to operate and change regulations and have to crack down on you. So in one sense, you can say, look, we're already, we're already doing things. We're yep. And so then you're perhaps, you're not waiting for governments to add more regulatory re exactly. to you. Exactly. Yep. So there's a strong risk management element yep. to corporate yep. social responsibility. Uh, another audience may be workers. Yep. Um, and especially in this day and age in which, you know, some have suggested that the younger generation, the millennials in particular, are worried about who they work for and that having symbolic blood on your hands is nothing that anyone wants to have um, and that they're less tolerant, I guess, of working for uh, unethical firms that are publicly deemed unethical or perceived to be unethical than uh, older generations who saw it as just a job and, mm. uh, you know, got on with things when they then were giving to the SPCA when they got home. 
Do you have a sense of when that shift started to happen in terms of when companies had to be a little bit more attuned to a changing generational preference? It's happened over the last 10 years, and there's no key catalyst, but I guess there's a number of issues that changed that brought this into the light. I guess the financial crisis really kind of pushed the global financial system into a legitimacy crisis. That really hasn't really recovered from. The scope of this fall, breathtaking. First, Bear Stearns, now Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch. Is your money safe? Is your job safe? Economists say this is the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. In popular discourse, you know, if you want to have the most ruthless person, you know, evil, secular version of evil, it's usually um, a Wall Street banker, right? Whether it's deserved or not. Mm -hmm. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. And also, I think, you know, my theory is that um, a lot of the millennials today saw their parents slave at the office and they paid off their mortgage and, and et cetera. But, you know, divorces, high blood pressure, the social cost and the physiological cost in some cases of that work ethic, they look at the older generation and think, I don't want to be like that and I don't want to forego my ethical views simply because I work for someone. So apart from uh, potential employees, apart from the government, who else has, who else is running their kind of their fingers down the CSR credentials of different companies? Um, well, you would have consumers, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of debate about whether consumers really care or not. Um, officially, they do that a consumer will opt for a more ethically sourced product than one that is at least publicly criticised for being unethical. And then you've got not only workers who you want to recruit, but your workforce per se is a very important part of this whole approach as well. And so you see corporate social responsibility becoming an interest of human resource managers in mm. corporations. And so that's important as well because, you know, really your people are your organisation and if they're annoyed and if they decide to withdraw their labour, you're in big trouble. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2SCR.com or your favourite podcasting app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're talking about corporate social responsibility with Peter Fleming. Now, Peter, I'm going to read you an excerpt from a company's statement about their corporate uh, social responsibility. I think it's from Uber. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have their, this is a statement from their, their policy and it's entitled Global Citizenship. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in this kind of statement, the company's going to address policies on safer communities, diversity, inclusion, environmental sustainability and accessibility. But I just want to read you this statement first off. Today's communities face an unprecedented set of challenges. And while technology by itself isn't the solution, when it's done right and combined with good partnerships, it has the potential to contribute to a better world for all. So what are your thoughts about a statement like that and Uber's position, for example, on corporate social responsibility? Well, Uber and a number of 
similar corporations have obviously, you know, um, jumped on the wagon of corporate social responsibility and want to be seen by the public and the paying public, but also government regulators, which is obviously big on their radar, given the controversy around the gig economy. They want to be seen that they are doing more than exploiting their um, underpaid workers. And so it's not surprising that they would come out with um, a narrative regarding their social benefits and their social value in terms of the wider um, society. But this kind of goes to the heart, I think, of the problem with corporate social responsibility more generally. And the critics right from the start were kind of homing in on this, that, you know, is it just talk? Is there really an effort to change the business model so that it is more harmonious with the environment or with consumers or with um, the broader social expectations? Or is it just window dressing? Is it a kind of I guess, want for want of a better word, a type of propaganda, mm. so that business as usual goes on mm. um, otherwise. And so there's a lot of debate about that. And, you know, I don't think it's that surprising that uh, some of the more controversial uh, businesses and industries do tend to have quite a colourful corporate social responsibility statement on their oh, websites. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, I do recall, uh, it's funny you mentioned uh, business ethics courses and the classic business ethics uh, example to bring up is Enron's kind of mm, vision statement yeah, uh, and the yeah. things that they talk about in terms of integrity and honesty and sure. and so on. It's, I mean, it's it's almost uh, it's almost hilarious, mm, the, the, mm. the hyperbole that goes into how ethical they are and so on and how much they care about their communities and yeah. and we all know what happened to Enron in the end. No, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. almost as if the more controversial an industry or a business is, the more emphasis they put on their corporate social responsibility um, mandate. Now, I want to turn to an issue that you raised in a recent uh, opinion piece you, wo- uh, you wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald mm-hmm. around another issue to do with corporate social responsibility was this growing trend whereby it seems that companies are starting to take up the reins of some sort of areas that we'd expect government to step in. So filling in gaps of services that we would normally expect a government to fulfill, mm-hmm. you know, because now they're these great citizens and so on, these corporate citizens. Can you tell us a bit about the problem that exists here? Yeah. So the trend is basically private corporations, usually quite large businesses, making intimations regarding uh, taking over from where a shrinking government has left off in terms of welfare and public uh, provisions, in terms of infrastructure, mm. but even social um, social issues around poverty relief, unemployment and so forth. And I think this is interesting, you know, because the problem with mainstream corporate social responsibility is that you can kind of easily dismiss it as window dressing or greenwashing and that you know that the organisation is just getting on with its revenue streams and you know you can kind of relatively take for granted that its CSR policy is kind of advertising and there is a reason why CSR has moved into the publicity department of Mm. big corporations rather than in their uh, accounting departments. But this is different because now you see under using CSR, corporate social responsibility, as a vehicle, you see large organisations and business people, extremely wealthy business people, saying, look, governments are doing a lousy job in terms of inequality or poverty. 
they're doing a lousy job in terms of um, living standards for lower economic groups. And it is true to a certain extent, they are. So they're saying basically, look, that we'll take over those uh, social services and we will do them. Or we will take an interest in providing for services that we would have otherwise thought democratically elected governments would do. And Uber is a classic case here where they say, look, we, our social purpose is to allow the underserved uh, lower economic groups to have an income. So we are stepping in and we are doing a government-like role. Also an employment service? Yeah, exactly. So this is actually an extension of corporate social responsibility into the realm of public services. Mm-hmm. And that might sound like an okay thing because, look, Bill Gates is rich. You know, why doesn't he fund a welfare state? You mm-hmm. know, it sounds mm-hmm. fine. We hear enough about governments not having enough money to spend on these things. Yeah, so yeah, it's a small budget. You know, yeah, we can kind of run up a surplus in the government Gina side. Gina Reinhart comes along and yeah, says, yeah, look, yeah. I'll pay for it. Yeah, wonderful. But there's a catch. <laughs> and there always <laughs> <Okay>. is. Okay. <laughs> and the catch is that really what they're saying is we will privatise it. Because if you think about it, the welfare state has still got a huge amount of resources associated with it. Mm. And corporations have been circling it for years. Mm -hmm. And they've made strong inroads into taking over contracting, for example, in the health service, education, another great example. Uh, Vocational education in Australia is extremely privatised. So that you've got this uh, large structure, the public welfare system and governmental system more generally, which is extremely rich. It's the build-up of years and years of investment by taxpayers. And so it's not surprising that corporations are circling it, you know, thinking Mm -hmm. what part of it can they take over and benefit and um, turn into a profitable business. Mm. And so that's the worrying part because you see creeping privatisation occurring and so it might be argued, so what's the problem with privatisation? Well, nothing's wrong with privatisation per se, but there are some spheres of life that really ought not to be privatised. They should be at least accountable to democratically elected governments and the will of the people. And privatisation immediately takes it away, especially if it tends to be a monopolistic situation. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, there are things that are... That the government provides, which um, I, I think through an economics lens, you yep. know, and there's reasons why you'd actually want that to be in the hands of government because they are opportunities for monopoly. You see, in terms of like postal services yep. or the provision of uh, telecommunications is a really interesting one. And some people are going to be served well by that, and some people, particularly you know, if they don't live in, a, in an urban environment, are not going to be served very well by that. Exactly, and also you know, people's minds and views about things change, and. Mm. There should be some sort of conduit or, or, or medium, which we call representative democracy, in which those views can then be uh, integrated into, you know, how we go forward as a country. Mm. But when it's privatised in that regard, you know, unfortunately, one of the main characteristics of a corporation is that they have a huge democracy deficit. You know, no CEO saying we'll take a vote. <laughs> it's not how they work and mm-hmm. they never have worked that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one is then worried about, especially in a, an oligopoly or monopoly-like situation, how that will kind of unfold. So turning, for example, welfare recipients into consumers, turning the poor into Uber drivers, what are the costs of that? And is that where a vibrant um, liberal democratic society ought to be going if we want to hold on to those ideals of some sort of representative government? 
And so this is a, this is actually a worrying um, trend, if you like, or development in corporate social responsibility, that it is no longer easily dismissed uh, propaganda. It is actually um, uh, real steps towards taking over certain institutional um, infrastructure uh, that we would otherwise have thought governments, elected governments, would be taken care of. So with, you know, CSR 2.0, how could we potentially combat or address, I guess, what you're saying is kind of the encroachment of private industry uh, into areas that would be otherwise kind of regulated or otherwise be the domain of, of the public sector? Well, you can look at it from a whole host of reasons. I think, you know, the first the first thing you, we need to do is to identify the problem. And for me, at least, the problem, you know, corporate social responsibilities, you know, I don't have too many problems with it. But the main reason it is there right from the beginning is because there is a contradiction between what a biz- businesses do as a sector. Well, there can be a contradiction or, or, or a tension and what broader society wants. And so you get corporate social responsibility emerging for a reason. And that reason is because, you know, of those tensions and contradictions. So I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, that contradiction is always, is at the heart of capitalism. The idea of having our cake and eating it is, is a dream. So there's always going to be that tension. And you've seen it, you know, with recessions, you've seen it with, um, you know, strikes and so forth, that it's going to come in many forms. But, try, but a CSR policy will not solve that problem. And this is an, an anti-business argument that I'm making. I'm just basically saying this is the realities of the system. What I would suggest, one way of approaching, you can get too utopian with this, but I think in realistic terms, you know, we need to be thinking of the social contract. You know, so what, what should industry and organisations and employers be offering back to society in order for that licence to operate? And it's pretty clear that it swung very, very much, you know, into an extreme sense, into the favour of business. And we saw this with the Royal Banking Commission regarding how things, how far things have gotten out of hand uh, to the point where large banks basically thought, you know, it seems, you know, from the evidence that they could do what they liked. The price paid by our community for this misconduct is immense and goes beyond just the financial. There have been broken businesses and the emotional stress and personal pain has broken lives. So rethinking the social contract in terms of going, okay, so if you if you do want a licence to operate, what do we expect of, exactly. of, of organisations, Ex- particularly commercial ones? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that's really, really important because, you know, there is a big legitimacy crisis in terms of this. Um, and then you could think about what is the nature of that social contract. It could be things like taxation. Uh, and that's a thorny issue. Um, and that's de- that's dependent on how you see economics working. And we don't need to open that can of worms. But the days of neoliberalism in which, you know, you don't tax corporations because if they get wealthy, they share it out to everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, no one believes that. Not even corporate leaders believe that anymore. No. And so we really need to revisit that facet of the social contract, I think, in an important manner. But I think that kind of interface between what organisations do and large corporations and businesses in particular with a lot of power do in relation to society, that interface needs to be rethought as well.
in one sense, it would be easy to throw the throw the baton over to say government on our behalf, society to you know we've got to rein in what businesses do. But if I just want to go back to those intended audiences of the CSR policies of organisations in the first place, so the graduate looking to get their uh, a job uh, at a good employer, the consumer that wants to do good in terms of buying an ethical product, uh, potentially even the investor um, as well. I mean, we can't just assume that they're dupes and that they kind of see, take this window dressing and they, they and they fall for it or, or so on. At some point also that the agency falls back on these individuals too. So what can individuals, the employees, the consumers, the people, who, the investors, the voters, what can they do to kind of redress this balance in defining the social contract with organisations? So it's not about being fooled or tricked or, you know, having a false consciousness uh, regarding the way in which the world works. I think there are reasons, economic mainly, why people get a job with uh, an employer. You've got to pay the bills, you know, and ethics tends to be secondary to paying the mortgage um, or, or, you know, personal ethics um, becomes secondary to getting an education or what have you. And so what I think has happened is that everything... You know, whereas whereas that economic instrumentality used to be one facet of society, one sphere, it's really come to dominate everything. And so in that society, it is not unsurprising that we act as instrumental, self-interested beings, because if we didn't, then I'd be living under a bridge downtown. And so... Therefore, you know, there is an element of individual agency there, but changing my individual practices, like putting out my recycling, isn't going to cut it. And maybe even choosing to work for an ethical employer rather than a non-ethical employer probably isn't going to cut it either. And so I think that what we really need to do is to kind of rein back that economic sphere. It's important and it's keyed into our survival and standard of living, et cetera, et cetera. But when that mentality really kind of overshadows things like civic, public spirit, um, a sense of community, uh, when it overshadows um, everything else, then we run into the problems that we're seeing. And it's not necessarily that people have been duped and that CSR is kind of fooling people. That is the reality. And it might be a little bit of a uh, panacea to know that my employer, if I'm working for a large oil company, is giving back to the local community in which it's digging up for an oil well, but it really kind of isn't getting to the heart of the issue. And I think that this is a societal issue and it's big and that's why it's difficult to talk about without going into the kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, utopian realm. But there have been many societies around the world and there are today in which the economic sphere is one of many and isn't dominating everything to the point where, you know, neoclassical economists become infamous for this, that they suggested that when I go home and I sit down at the dinner table and talk to my family, think of it as a market. <laughs> it's a financial exchange. <laughs> it's a money transaction, you know, because your kids, you know, they're only there with their food because you've paid for it, you know. So it's got, it goes a bit crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so that mentality has spread throughout all of society yeah. and it has certain consequences. So I think that what we really need is to rethink the purpose of 
economics mm-hmm. and the purpose of business and think about how it's how its ideological influence has really permeated everything. And business itself is not a bad thing. Corporations themselves aren't a bad thing. But we have to have some sort of balance, I think. And um, and when that mentality dominates everything else, you know, my dinner with my family isn't as pleasurable as it was before, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. I'm doing a cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I, I would probably take away from that is it's about recognising the what is actually happening here. So we are now savvy to seeing some initiatives as just window dressing and mm-hmm. can kind of and have adapted to that. And so if we can recognise the potential problems that exist with the encroachment of, say, CSR into realms of the public sector, we can then adapt to that again. So I'm, uh, thank you so much You're for welcome. Uh, My perhaps drawing our attention to something that I probably would have taken a little bit for granted. Right. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is made by UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. And you can also search for us on your favourite podcasting app. Our executive producer is Jason Lequier, and Ben Robinson provides additional production support. Thanks heaps to Peter Fleming for coming onto the show to talk to us about the changing nature of CSR. Until next time. Mm-hmm.